Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin. So glad that you're joining me today. This is part two on the Beatitudes that I'm calling the Attitudes That Ought to Be. We covered the first couple yesterday. And uh, as we look at Jesus giving this Sermon on the Mount, it seems like it's upside down. It seems like it's opposite as to what we would expect Jesus to say to us. But he gives this wonderful sermon, and all the time you'll hear politicians say, well, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I don't think they do, because in that sermon, it is opposite of human philosophy. It is opposite as to what we are seeing in our culture today. I mean, Jesus said the way up is down, and uh, the way to be rich is to be poor. And so it seems like it's opposite of how we are living our lives today in our culture. You know, we are living in a time and age where there's more millionaires than has ever been on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, it's pretty common now to be a millionaire. It's no big thing if you're a millionaire now. Now the big thing is I got to be a billionaire. It seems like we're never satisfied. So Jesus, when he comes and he gives this wonderful sermon, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we talked about that yesterday, and, and we learned that in order to be rich or in order to experience the riches of Christ, you got to be poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of God. And we talked about the fact that if you're going to be a recipient of the kingdom of God, it's not because you're rich. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you've earned it. It's because you have become broken or poor in spirit. You become destitute. You come to the end of yourself. You've become undone, realizing you have nothing to offer God. You're poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we looked at the second beatitude, and the second beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, when you go through the depths of despair, this is a slightly different beatitude. When you're going through the depths of despair, you're going to go through a process or a time of mourning, but you will be comforted. Sometimes people ask me, well, why do we do funeral services? Well, funerals are never for the dead. It's always for the living. It is the beginning of the mourning process that you go through when you lose somebody really close to you. As a matter of fact, I went through a, a time of, I guess you could call it kind of a mild burnout. And it was just a time in our, our church life history and my own personal life history where I was going through so much and I had so much on my plate. And I remember doing funerals. I remember one day I had two funerals one day. The next day I had a wedding, followed by another day with two more funerals. So I did four funerals and a wedding uh, within two days. And uh, I was just drawn, uh, I was just like exhausted. And I remember doing that, that, that last funeral. And I remember doing that. And I says, you know what? I am checked out. <laughs> I can't identify with this family. I can't feel for this family. And I just totally went through the motions. Uh, and, and it hit me that I am suffering from a mild case of burnout. Uh, so I did what I considered the most godly thing I could do. I went home after that service, and I took a nap. You know, sometimes the, the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. But when we have funerals, the purpose of a funeral is to give us an opportunity to mourn. Don't just pretend to be tough. If you lose somebody that you love, we are expected to grieve over that person. Now, we don't grieve without hope. We have the blessed hope found in Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus mourned. 
You know, he wept when he lost his friend Lazarus, and he cried, and, and he even knew he's going to rise, raise him back up to life. But he spent some time warning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you never mourn, you never can be comforted. So God has wired us in such a way that from time to time, we must make room for sadness so that God can come along and fill us with joy and be comforted. Well, the third beatitude, the third part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the meek are going to inherit the earth. Uh, What does this mean? This means that the meek are those who have that spirit of gentleness. It's a spirit of self-control, and they're free from something, right? They are free from malice. They're free from a condescending spirit. So here, meekness is not weakness. It's really meekness is really strength that is under control. Uh, They're able to control themselves. Now, the meek may be like the poor and that they have no resources of their own, but then they may be like Moses, describing himself as being meek and humble in Numbers chapter 12. But the meek do not exploit and oppress others. That's what makes them meek. It's not just that they don't have anything. It's that they have decided in their situation not to exploit others. They're not given over to vengeance. They have no vendettas. Uh, they're not violent. They do not try to seize power for their own ends. In short, they emulate the nature of Christ in their lives, and they're learning from him. Now, this doesn't mean that they are weak or ineffective in their lives. They may be gentle and humble, but they can and they do champion the needs of the weak and the oppressed. So the promise here is that they will possess the land. What is meant by land? Well, probably as this was written in the Old Testament, it was probably a promise of land. All throughout the Bible was a promise of the nation of Israel that they would have a land in the case of Jerusalem, right? 3,000 years ago, David said that Jerusalem was going to be the capital head for the nation of Israel. It was a land that was given to them by God. It was a possession of this land, and it signified that sense of a place, a a security, this inheritance that is given to them from God. But the land was constantly invaded, and the people were constantly exiled and scattered. And yet the promise of regathering to that land remains, and the promise of that new covenant as we come into the New Testament, we also say these promises seem now to be realized with the second coming of the Messiah, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Well, I'm so happy that we have in Jerusalem We now have that as recognized as a head for the nation of Israel. But even if it is lost again, this is a promise that is given in a new covenant. This is a promise will be fulfilled with a glorious future. And the application is this. If I'm going to become weak, I'm going to inherit the earth. How do I do it? What if one's nature is not meek? Well, the answer comes from other passages within the Bible that describe how the spiritual life works. You see, meekness and gentleness and goodness are part of the fruit of the Spirit. They are produced in the Christian by the Holy Spirit. President Theodore Roosevelt adopted as his pet proverb, I guess you could say, speak softly, but carry a big stick. 
By that, he meant that if the United States has a strong military, then it could work among the other nations of the world, and we wouldn't have to be loud and boisterous about it. We'd have the strength of our military to back up whatever was said. So we'd have to yell it. We could speak it softly. In 1901, Roosevelt elaborated on his philosophy by saying, if a man continually blusters a big stick, it's not going to save him from trouble, neither will speaking softly avail. At the back of the softness, there must be strength and there must be power, okay? So it was more than just a big stick. It was a strong military. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, he wasn't speaking about armies and he wasn't speaking about foreign policy, but some principles are the same. The meek Christian does not need to bluster as if he or her is his own self-confidence to win the day. Whether we're contesting a point or responding to criticism or speaking of hope within, we can do so in meekness with quiet confidence. For in the back of softness within us lies the strength and the power of God. Frederick Douglass, in his 77 years, was America's most famous abolitionist. He delivered thousands of speeches, wrote three autobiographies, started newspapers, met with President Lincoln, championed the cause of the African-American civil rights. But most people downplay a critical part of his life. He had a radical Christian faith. The crucible of Douglas' prophetic Christian faith was in his childhood, where he suffered and suffered as a slave. Before his escape at the age of 20, Douglas witnessed and endured great cruelty, especially at the hands of, as unbelievable as it may sound, at the hand of Christian masters. Uh, he saw firsthand brutal whippings, cold blooded murder, and the daily trials of physical and psychological abuse. He watched a slave master beat his aunt and his 15-year-old daughter, who was strikingly beautiful, and beat her almost to death. In 1826, Douglas was sent to Baltimore to live with Hugh and Sophia Ald. When he heard Sophia, a devout Christian, read from the book of Job, Douglas decided that he had to know more about this man, Job. I mean, how could he say, despite his sufferings, blessed be the name of the Lord? Well, Douglas secretly taught himself how to read, and as a teenager, he formally converted to Christianity, and he began to shepherd a little congregation of free black Methodists, and he learned about the assurance of salvation as he studied the Word, and he learned that he had to cast all of his care upon God. And Douglas wrote that he found his faith in Christ as his Redeemer, as his friend, and as his Savior. Well, in March of 1833, Hugh sent Douglas back to the Eastern Shore. For the next three years, Douglas worked as a field hand, and, and he finally escaped up to New Bedford, Massachusetts. By 1841, he was involved in the abolition movement. His task was to convince Americans to see the anti-slavery cause as a great moral necessity. To that end, he repeated a chastening refrain 
between the Christian of this land and the Christian of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Now, for Douglas, the problem was not Jesus or Christianity. It was the hypocrisy of some Christians. He condemned what he called the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering hypocrisy of Christianity everywhere present in America. He blasted the man who wields the blood-clouded cowskin during the week and fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and the lowly Jesus. He derided the slaveholder who covers the infernal business with a garb of Christianity. Now, as you think about that, the Pharisees were condemned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and in other places. Slaveholders and their apologists attend with pharisaical strictness to the outward forms of religion. And at the same time, they neglect the weightier matters of law, judgment, and faith. They had utterly abandoned true Christianity of Christ and invited the wrath of a just and avenging God. As we think about this movement that we experience here in the United States that finally brought about freedom for those who were enslaved, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How can we live in this realm of meekness? How can we be inheriting the earth? We must understand that our strength comes from the Lord. We're not going to find success in overthrowing governments because governments don't have the solution. It is found in the meekness of serving Christ. That's where we overthrow and inherit the earth. I know it sounds backwards, and I got to admit to you that this is a struggle I think that we all face. From time to time, we want to be like Jesus running the money changers out, but then Jesus only did that on one occasion, and it was when they were turning the house of God into a den of thieves. And he says, how dare you take this place of worship and turn it into a place of commerce? You see, Jesus was meek but not weak. He had that strength under control. Well, there's another beatitude that we've got to look at. Jesus is audacious when he says, Blessed are those who hunger, those who thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, the Old Testament background for this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount now, we see this image of hunger and this image of thirst, and then there's a comparison with this drive for righteousness. In other words, when I am really hungry, I'm going to be driven to find a solution to feed my hunger, and I'm going to be driving for thirsting after righteousness, I will be filled. You know, when a person is truly hungry, they're not too concerned with what kind of plate you use. A person that is truly hungry and truly thirsty is not going to be too concerned with what kind of cup you put that water in. They are hungering and thirsting, and they're crying out for satisfaction. You know, God has given us his basic human drive, that we are driven to have our natural hunger satisfied and our natural thirst satisfied. And so Jesus now says, 
You're going to be blessed if you have that same drive for righteousness. You will be filled. I see the image then is portraying this desire to do the will of God as that constant drive that is strong and continuous. You notice that when you eat a meal, you get so full, you say, I cannot eat another bite. That's how I felt after eating my Thanksgiving dinner. I was so full, I could not eat another bite. I wanted a piece of pumpkin pie, but I was just too full to eat it. But you know, four hours later, I was looking for that pumpkin pie because that hunger returned. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So God fills us with his righteousness when we desire to have that righteousness filled, but then we get hungry again, but then he fills us again. You see, we have already thought about righteousness with its meaning of conforming to the standard, right? Doing the will of God. That's what righteousness is. Well, here the word probably has two meanings, the word righteousness. One would certainly be in our personal life that the strong desire to please God, to do what God wants us to do, you know, to live up to the will of God. But out of this would grow the desire for righteousness in the land, uh, for justice within the land. When there is unrighteousness and there's injustice, that we have the desire to see things changed. And as we look at this desire, it will be filled. You see, the promise of the king is that the desire for righteousness will be fulfilled. Theologically, this happens kind of in stages. The basic desire to be right with God is met by the gracious gift of God's righteousness. This is what we call justification, being declared righteous in the courts of heaven. Then as a disciple of Christ or a follower of Christ, that desire to do righteous works will be finding its fulfillment in the power of the Spirit. This is what we would call practical sanctification. All right, so we're unrighteous, we receive the gift of salvation, and we are declared justified just as if we have never sinned. We continue to walk with the Savior. That desire to do righteous things is fulfilled in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where we have practical sanctification. We're becoming holier as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, becoming more and more like Christ. And then in the future, when the Lord returns and establishes his universal righteousness, we shall be changed. This is called glorification, being transformed into the glorious state. So there are three significant things that will happen to you if you are driving in determination to be righteous. You will be declared justified when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You will continue to be sanctified as you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will one day be glorified, transformed into that glorious state as you look at the future of being one who follows Christ. So Jesus is reminding us here that we ought to be striving for righteousness, thirsting for righteousness. Many years ago, I used to run cross-country. And they would tell us before, the day before we had a meet, that you'd have to carb up, right? The night before the cross-country meet, we'd go home and eat a bunch of carbs, right? Uh, Get a big old plate of spaghetti and carb up the night before. Uh, You have that desire to have starch, right? Now, conventional wisdom 
surrounding the function of our taste buds basically focuses on five essential types of flavors. You know, you have sweet and salty and savory, sour, and bitter. To that list, scientists have added a sixth taste. They call it starchy. Now, a professor from Oregon State University explains the justification for this recent addition. A team of researchers found volunteers who would identify as starch-like taste in various carb solutions, even after being administered a solution that would block the taste of sweetness. And they discovered that Asians would say it was like a rice-like desire, while Caucasians would describe it as a bread-like or a pasta-like. It's like eating flour. Now, this starch is completely enshrined in the proverbial hall of taste, right? Food scientists insist that primary taste become recognizable. They have identified taste receptors on the tongue that trigger a useful psychological response. These scientists are working on finding these taste receptors. But for useful physiology, one needs to look no further than athletes. There's a reason why bodybuilders and distant runners and and basketball players always are using that term carving up or carb loading to describe their culinary habits. The cliche is true. The body knows what it wants. You see, when you are born again, the Holy Spirit works in you and gives you the desires that you want. When I was a child, growing up, and we'd have dinner as a family, my mom didn't want us when we visited somebody else. Uh, you know, she was always afraid, you know, we're going to go visit somebody, and she could bring these seven kids, and, and they're going to eat too much. And so she would always feed us before we visited others. <laughs> now, maybe you had a similar type thing, because she didn't want us to be hungry when we visited somebody. And she even told us, listen, when you go to visit somebody, and um, they ask you, would you like something to eat or something to drink? Uh, she used to tell us, well, say, no, thank you. But then if it was offered a second time, we'd say, well, if you insist, thank you. I would like to have something. Trying to be polite. Here's the point. Don't mask your hunger for righteousness. Pursue it. So we would have something to eat before we went to visit others so that we would not be making a hog of ourselves but we were not masking our desire to eat. We were satisfying it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you have this determination to live right, God will fulfill that right in you, that righteousness within you. Well, there's another beatitude that we've got to look at. Number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Now, here's the meaning of this. One thing that is common to the poor in spirit is, and the meek and those who are hungering for righteousness is that their life is not self-sufficient, but looks outward for help. They understand mercy, for they know their own lack of things. They're incomplete. They've got weaknesses and and they are dependent upon somebody. And and so when they receive graciousness, 
when they receive mercy from the king, they in turn know how to show mercy to others. So showing mercy to others includes both forgiveness of the sinner and compassion for the suffering. And I want you to tune in tomorrow because I'm going to explore this blessed other merciful, but they shall be shown mercy at a deeper level. But the bottom line you're going to discover is that many people can't show mercy or won't show mercy because they don't see the need for mercy in themselves. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are those who know they need mercy, for they shall be shown mercy. So join me tomorrow as we continue this study on the Beatitudes of Christ, the attitudes that ought to be. Well, thank you, Lord, for meeting with us today. Thank you for allowing the Holy Spirit to move across this broadcast. To those who have listened, I pray that they will be blessed. I pray that it be encouraged. I pray that they tune in tomorrow as we conclude this series on the Beatitudes of Christ. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I can pray for you, if you'd like to send me a text, my number is 252-267-2365. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to talking with you tomorrow. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.